Say, I'm frightfully sorry to have disturbed you, but I thought you might want to know that there are fists in the hotel. He gestured down the corridor with his gun. Carl poked his head out and discovered a dead bellboy, sprawled out in front of an open door, still clutching a long knife. As it happens, I was already up, said Carl Hollywood, and contemplating a bit of a stroll to the waterfront. Care to join me? Delighted. Colonel Spence, Royal Joint Forces, retired. Carl Hollywood. Look at you, you're so you're so scruffy. I'm very scruffy. I'm super scruffy. Yeah, I'm sort of like the um uh, the stereotype of a man who's quit his job. Hang hang on. You can't you can't skate past the stereotype of a man who's quit his job without <laughs> articulating for us just what that stereotype might be in your opinion. Well, um I think there's a certain point where perhaps one maintains a kind of professional uh, appearance for the sake of one's professional relationship and then when one finds uh, you know I'm using a lot of the one uh, uh, as That's my good. direct I'm enjoying, object I'm enjoying this like foray oh, yeah. into the conditional into or, or, well, like, or the subjunctive when one finds that one no longer needs to rely on such social relationships with one's tribe <laughs> One may choose to allow one's whiskers to grow. <laughs> yeah, I may. I'm, I don't know. I sometimes grow a fall beard. That's 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 a. My dad always grew a fall beard. I feel like it's very New England. You seem to have a fall beard growing, or have you had I, a beard this entire time? I've had a beard this entire time. I I, oh. I more or less like have just a permanent beard now. Um, I feel like when we started, you had a mohawk. Am I, I, I remember. Still, I still have a mohawk. It's just. Oh, maybe it's, it's just, just the like, headphones. The headphones. Oh, yeah, it's an outgrown. Um, yeah. uh, one of my favorite lines from The Cherry Orchard. Uh, there is a character um, named Yepi Kodoff who's sort of the like bumbling fool of uh, of of the uh, of the play. Um, and there's this great line in one in a really good translation where he's like, "Take for example this mustache. It just grew here by itself." <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, and there's this like moment where you're like. Well, yeah, like that's what mustaches do. And then, I don't know, you just you just kind of circle around and like, is this a brilliant piece of writing? Is this an accident? It's it's just one of those Chekhovian mysteries that we'll never know. The other thing that reminds me of is, you know, we have a, a, a tentative plan to read Cryptonomicon uh, in like, next. In like 10 days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like... Well, we're dividing it into three, but it's it's a long ass book. Uh, I have a recollection that the main one of the main characters academic girlfriends wrote a academic essay on beards and one of the arguments was a sort of counterintuitive argument about what was more natural shaving or not shaving it was a sort of academic argument about why beards are essentially bad and it was just a, it was represented huh. as kind of a hilariously passive aggressive way of complaining about her boyfriend's beard without actually doing it. I mean that that's a page right out of the uh the Fedland memo. Yeah. Um you know it's like the same the same sort of narrative conceit is like well shit like what's the best way to make these people like feel bad about themselves. It's it's right this like marvelous 20 page memo about uh toilet paper. I think satirizing um forms of 
official writing is one thing Stevenson enjoys. So, uh, yeah. Welcome in, listeners, uh, to another episode of uh, Upper Middlebrow. Tonight we are considering, for your entertainment, uh, part the second of uh, of Neil Stevenson's 1995 um, Dickensian, neo-Victorian, ambitious novel about... Education for the masses, nanotechnology, cryptocurrency, decentralized networks, wild nationalist rebellions, um, and geopolitics. Quite possibly uh, the birth of um, the seed, uh, which uh, we we hear maybe yeah. um, maybe used for ill or for good, but. Uh, in the nature that I think we'll talk about tonight is sort of hand waved away at the very last moment. It, it, yeah, the seed. Yeah, it, no. It's uh, you and I texted a little bit about this, which is like he's got about three novel ideas in this novel, <laughs> and the seed is one of them. I will also say massive multiplayer games as well, which I'm not sure existed then. But if you think about the mouse armies incursion into the world of uh, the, um, the the primer, uh, sort of unexpected incursion, as I understand mm-hmm. it, you basically have a multi a massive multiplayer game happening, which is something that Stevenson in later novels uh, becomes mm-hmm. very fascinated with, for sure. Um, also, the way that um, that the theater um, is played out on the dramatic oh, yeah. personation, um, yep. th- that is basically a lot like dropping into a world of warcraft game where there's like a whole bunch of different like shows going on at once um and you sort of get to pick which ones that you are a part of um but we're, yeah. we're getting a little ahead yeah, of yeah. ourselves dive in well yeah let's uh well, shall we, shall so we dive let's, in? Uh, yeah let's turn to uh part the second um boy if a plot summary of part the first was hard <laughs> i don't well, i'm yeah. not quite sure how we can pull this off in a small amount of time, but I think we should try. Well, I really liked what you did last time, which was just name the characters and their arcs. And and, uh, I think we could do that again. And I think one thing we can notice is that Judge Fang and his crew basically disappear. Gone. Gone. <laughs> like, like, which is attached to one of my questions that you might have seen yeah. in the notes about orphaned MacGuffins. Well, and there are two characters who kind of play a similar role that Judge Fang and his crew, um, who who either are introduced in the second, in part the second, or become more prominent in part the second. And one is Carl Hollywood, who goes kind yeah. of from minor character to major character. Yeah. Who I cannot, um, and the, I cannot... I cannot hear his name at any point without, uh, without you know, instantly flopping back to the uh, to the, the the movie Mystery Train, Night Train, Mystery Train. Um, which is it? The Jim the, Jim Jarmusch. The Jim film? Jarmusch. Is it Night it's Train or Memphis? Mystery Train? Mystery yeah. Train is sent in Mystery Memphis. Train. Two, yep. two like Japanese tourists walking right. around. Memphis. One of whom yeah. says, you know, has this like ongoing conversation about who is better, Elvis Presley or Carl Perkins. And oh. every time Carl Hollywood is mentioned in my brain, I hear Carl Perkins. <laughs> There's something about the Carl and the Hollywood and Carl Perkins and Mystery Train that has just like shunted those like ways of thinking together in my brain. I I always imagine him as uh, um, Kiefer Sutherland in Young Guns uh, because he's tall and blonde and has a duster. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. And uh, um, 
yeah, it's interesting too because I, I think he's supposed to be a southerner, like from New Orleans or something like that, and and he is a um, I don't know. At first, I thought he was. Because his name is Carl Hollywood, I thought of him as kind of a scumbag. That's sort of a like porn star kind of scumbag, pimpy type name, right? And yep. he's in, um, but he turns out to be kind of a mensch. Um, and, and like it, central, it, yeah, like weirdly central to the success of the plot. He he kind of welds together what I see as the two plots. He's the yeah. he's the character who, and then the other one who who appears. Well, there's the constable who's kind of a minor character, and there's also Mrs. Uh, Matheson, um, and maybe we could say. Um, so as part one of the things that happens in part the second is that uh, Harve and Nell escape their uh, troubled domestic life and escape. Uh, we mentioned Dovetail, and they're sort of taken in, but Harv can't be taken in, and so he has to go back out on the streets, and Nell is taken in and starts going to a uh, neo-Victorian school under the tutelage of Mrs. Matheson and some others, and then also has a new father figure in um, uh, the constable, who also turns out to be kind of a retired freelance uh, general, who yeah. is, you know, in his off hours is sort of propagating a land war in Asia, you know, when he's, <laughs> which is, again, a lot of plot. Um, and uh, yeah, so one, so so we still have Nell, and we followed Nell uh, and her two friends. She becomes friends with Fiona Hackworth and um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Finkel McGraw. Um, and we kind of follow them into young adulthood uh, to to be about age eighteen or so. Um, do you want to take? You want to name some other character arcs? Um, the book, the the second part of the book for for John Percival Hackworth's um, arc, who's our other main arc, um, opens with him um, beginning oh, to God. serve what we discover is his ten year sentence um, to uh, the to the Central Kingdom. Um, that he was very, uh, very cryptically, though. Yeah, um, yeah. He does takes, not know that he is takes, about to go right away for ten years. Uh, he falls in with a file uh, called the Drummers, uh, which are basically a hive mind um, gestalt society that finds new members and brings them into their group through the transference of um, bodily fluids. Underwater Burning Man. Yeah, yeah. Underwater Burning Man. Uh, they inflate these amazing tunnels underneath the water. Um, I, one of my things that I want to talk about tonight is the overlapping of yeah. book projects because I was like, oh, here we are back with the like, <laughs> these are the cult right, prostitutes right. from Snow Crash. Um, but the idea that information can be transmitted in a variety of like of a means. virus, but we learn <laughs> like a virus. We we learned that Hackworth has been sent here by Doctor X, basically so he can power the hive mind computations of the drummers in a way that will allow Doctor X to create something that is called the seed. Um, which is kind of a doomsday object and also kind of a, um, a deus ex machina object where one seed can grow into anything. Um, it could grow into a hydrogen bomb. It could grow into food. It could grow into a Toyota Camry right. for all we know. Um, but it is basically, in, in sort of my reading of it, it is it is trying to do the opposite of what 
Hackworth has always been trying to do. Hackworth sort of believes that um, the way of the world is that order is assembled from less order. Um, and the seed, to me, strikes me as a movement in the opposite direction, um, where there's a highly ordered thing that then can become anything. Um, yeah. So... Hackworth's quest is to find the alchemist. Uh, that is what uh, Dr. X has sent him on. Uh, and that is, and we, we discover over the course of the second half of the book that Hackworth is the alchemist. And it is a combination of his brain, the drummer's gestalt hive mind that is going to do the computational power to allow both the seed to come into being um, and to kind of break down what I'm pretty sure is a decentralized blockchain system, a la a cryptocurrency that powers the media net that is going to allow Miranda to find Nell. Um, and again, we're back into snow crash land of basically like what is information disaster? Is it, is it the, is it the cutting off of information or is it the opening up of information? Yeah. And I think probably the other thing to mention is that it, towards the beginning of the second half, he's, we, we shoot forward through time pretty quickly, and he is freed by his neo-Victorian spy um, handlers, uh, you know, who use some nanotechnology to allow him to get out. So Hackworth regains his agency in the second half of the book, and one of the things he does mm -hmm. is um, reconnect with his daughter, Fiona, who is a teenager, uh, when his wife had, wants nothing to do with him, but Fiona um, still loves him. And we learn that as he's been sort of hypnotized and unconscious, um, Hackworth has been sort of serving the role of narrator of his daughter Fiona's adventures with the primer. So when she's spending time with the primer, she's actually hearing um, Hackworth um, read to her. And so they've, able, they've been able to maintain their relationship be, because of that. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell us about the adventures of Princess Nell over the second half of the book? So Princess Nell yeah. is inside the primer, um, but her 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 development it kind of parallels what sort of Hackworth's experience of like discovering more. Um, but take us through kind of her adventures with um, uh, King Coyote. Yeah, I ha I have to admit I didn't fully understand everything that was happening. Um, so Princess Nell, uh, her companions, her night friends, one by one sort of die off as they become less uh, useful to her. And I believe the primer wants her to become more independent. Um, and so she starts going on a series of adventures in the primer where she's taken to these different castles. Castle Turing is a fun one uh, where she basically has to determine whether... Is Count Turing, which is a giant man in armor, is a computer or not. And he also uses a code devised by Alan Turing using a series of chains. And so it, Nell is getting kind of tutored in some basic computer programming and also some concepts about artificial intelligence. I don't fully understand the King Coyote quest, to be honest. Um, do you understand it? Uh, I yeah, uh, kind of. I mean, like this, the second half of this book is a bit of a mess. Um, and, and it's, and it's a bummer because I, I, I suspect, I suspect that Neil mm. Stevenson got bored. Um, and we, 
we need to we need the adventure with King Coyote um, because we discover that King Coyote is in fact John right. Percival Hackworth in Nell's primer and the Mouse Army, which are the you know a quarter of a million, probably up to a third of a million um, Chinese children. Well, and do children. we think that King Coyote is a artificial um, construct? Of John Percival Hackworth, or does she actually kind of do like a Skype with John Percival Hackworth in that moment, you know, where he actually communicates with it? Because that was one thing I didn't fully understand in that I, moment. I, I, I think so. I think, I think, I, I do think that it's not a Skype, but it's another well, they're, part they're, of the kind of what yeah. the drummers have been, oh, yeah, okay. have been able to like open up that like Hackworth is kind of dropping into the primer in the same way that he oh, dropped I into see. Fiona's primer. Um, and that's what I think is going on. And the reason we need it is kind of linked with that section where Carl, Carl Hollywood's hack, um, where he is sort of figuring out that John Percival Hackworth has basically come up with like the key to end all keys, which is the 12th key. That is King the, and is has. the 12th key the seed or is it, is it, is it something I know? I know that I don't quite understand what these keys are. I mean, you kind of get the sense that Nell is learning yeah. some precepts of computer programming, but the keys seem to have some plot significance that I don't fully track. Yes, it has plot significance to the next book we're going to read, Cryptonomicon, because Neil Stevenson was clearly wrestling with the ideas that then become mm. central to that book while he was still writing this one. Um, that that's a that is a harsh uh, that's a harsh judgment. No, I think but you're I, right. I, I, I kind of suspect it's true. I think the twelfth key is the key that could is the thing that makes the seed possible. I think I think that's right too. That seems right too because there is at the very end there is sort of a like Frodo with the ring, you know, putting the ring on and you know there's a fight at the you know at Mount Doom over the yeah. ring, you know, at the very end of the yeah. book. A really bland fight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is confusing. Um it is a it is a confusing second half of the book. I'm trying to think if there are other arcs that we need to uh that we need to touch base here. Uh we know that Miranda, um Nell's mother figure who has been playing mm -hmm. um most of the parts of the primer has also joined the drummers um in a desire to find Nell. Um th that's how she is sort of sold on it. As these two members again, of I find this part um, confusing. These I don't quite understand what it is they're trying to get her to do and why they need her. Um, but yes, she they they have they have some proposition by which Miranda can find Nell. Miranda's become very attached to Nell um, and basically considers herself mm -hmm. um, Nell's mother at this point. And I th I think I I, th I think the big come together. Is so um, Dr. X gets all of these these hundreds of thousands of primers from mm -hmm. John Percival Hackworth. They work well, but they don't work perfectly. Uh, in some ways, this book is a big argument for traditional yeah. family structure <laughs> because it's like it's like or not, maybe not traditional family structure, but like you better yeah, have or, or or somebody. It doesn't have to be your <laughs> biological mom. And I mean, this is I think this is what we talk about with Justin, too, um, which is interesting, right, you know, true. because I think a but, lot of people maybe misunderstand <laughs> the argument with regard to the efficacy of the primer. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah. So, but I think I think what's happening is that Nell's relationship to the Primer is special in a way that the CryptNet people and Dr. X who are looking for the seed recognize that they need Nell, the Primer, Miranda, Hackworth, um, and the drummers all to be kind of connected in a very um, coincidental and sort of plot of a novel manner uh, in order to get the thing to make the seed work. Um, all of that stuff has to function together uh, for for that to occur. Um, but I understand your confusion, and I've been having it too. This novel is oblique and frustrating ways. So the, the other major plot thing that happens too is a much easier plot to track, although it's 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 also it's 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 done largely by implication, but essentially there's conflict between the celestial kingdom and the coastal kingdom shanghai coastal kingdom we're meant to understand is more modernized and sort of cosmopolitan and liberal and the celestial kingdom is kind of nationalistic and conservative and resents this sort of new world um and uh the um celestial kingdom wins or at least overruns uh shanghai with its sort of mob slash army called what the fists of harmonious nature fists, fists of celestial uh, fists of something it, it doesn't they, they mostly it, it just call them the doesn't fists. matter they're, they're young men who <laughs> basically attack anybody they perceive as immoral or not han chinese or both and there's also a regular army that has some relationship to dr x um and the the mandarins of the celestial kingdom and they essentially in a very sort of relatively traditional way there's nano warfare happening but there's also just regular old you know territorial warfare happening slowly are approaching shanghai for the final chapters where carl hollywood finds himself where nell finds herself where hackworth finds himself and it leads to a kind of final series of events in shanghai and then sort of on the coast as the army is closing in and there are hundreds of thousands of refugees who are facing slaughter at the hands of these armies who, you know, need to be rescued and make their way to New Chuzon. Um, and that's, that kind of forces the sort of last few chapters, which I've, I found very enjoyable. Um, and it is one of those things with Stevenson yeah. where often you can read it at one level and sort of enjoy the kind of action adventure story and only kind of understand some of the other things that are happening. And, um, but, I mean, you know, we didn't do the most amazing recap, but I think we nailed all the threads, right? I think so, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of questions, but, um, um, listener, it's, um, it's, yeah. it's a wild ride. Extremely it's an interesting ambitious ride. novel. Is, I would say um, more ambitious than Snow Crash. Yeah, I think so. And I, th- I think more ambitious mm. than Cryptonomicon, too. Um, but we'll, we'll see when we get to Cryptonomicon um, about that. I think, I think this one is trying to do so many things that I really appreciate and applaud it for, um, for doing. Um, but yeah, so you've got an observation. Uh, we talked about, uh, Bud's opening chapter last time. It looks like you've got, yeah. Well, uh, I, I posed the question, why did we have that opening chapter? Cause we both agree that it functions, but it, 
it's no deliberator yep. chapter, right? I, or at least it, 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 it's if it's trying to be a deliberator chapter, it maybe gets a B plus, right? But it, it whereas the deliberator <laughs> chapter is an A, and so why start with this guy? And it, you know, to me now it's sort of more clear if you. To me, the plot that I enjoy the most, and we'll talk more about this in our bonus episode, I enjoy the Nell, Nell's pedagogy, Nell's education, Nell's coming of age, and all the different foils for Nell, including her two friends who are her age, who have the primers, including the half a million Chinese girls, the Mouse Army, who also have the primer, including uh, Harv, her brother, um, who is morally um, a much better person than her father, their father, Bud, um, but also does not get exposed to particularly uh, nurturing or wholesome culture uh, production. In fact, he spends his time, this is another thing, I looked up when Grand Theft Auto was invented, the, the video game, because he seems to be playing <laughs> something very similar to GTA 3. Uh, you know? Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> his, his entertainment is basically robbing, it's a, a, a video game, sort of immersive virtual reality game where he, he, he is a criminal who runs around and like there's a quest he has to go on where he's helping his girlfriend get an abortion pill. Um, and, he, and he has yeah, to yeah. mug some Victorians and then he, in order to do that, and then he feels bad uh, when he's describing this to Nell because he, you know, she's sort of Victorian at this point and he realizes that's not appropriate. It's, it's very sad actually. Um, but then there's also, you know, I think Bud and Tequila I think we're meant to understand are where maybe Nell and Harv would end up if it weren't for the primer and if it also weren't for maybe another ineffable quality they have, which is their loyalty to one another, uh, too. So so mm-hmm. Nell has two great strengths, um, and one is her relationship to Harv, you know, who is her protector, and then the the things that she learns in the primer, and then she develops her own strength. And so I think it kind of... I think the Bud chapter it becomes especially important when you think about where Nell might have ended up otherwise, uh, too. So I, that Got was something it. that yeah. occurred to me in the second half that did not occur to me in the first half, too, which is that Bud is another foil for Nell. And um, if we're thinking of this book as a book about what people might become, uh, you know, all men start out the same, but di- but diverge. Um, I think it does make sense yep. to start with the, the Bud chapter. Um, and that wasn't something I had thought of the last time we yeah. talked. No, it's a great observation. I mean, we get there there in the second half of the book when um, the fists um, get some some better ammunition and they do manage to blow yeah. up the causeway between um uh, between the mainland and yep. and Shanghai, the Central Coast Republic, um, we do get a image of um, of poor people using the mm. funeral piers and like rolling like hundreds of bodies, like little cigarettes, uh, off of the funeral piers into the water. Um, and it's one of those things of where it's like that is such a strength of Stevenson's that that he does bring yeah. that detail back um, because that's one of those moments when you're like, oh right, like. Like, boy, shit could be yeah. much By the worse. way, I think that Shanghai is on the mainland, and the causeway goes from Shanghai God. to New Chuzan, which is the artificial <laughs> island that includes New Atlantis and the least territories. I did some searches for Diamond yeah. Age map and did not come up with anything. Point, um, but it took me a while. 
At one point, they also refer, refer to Source Victoria as being on the central plateau, um, uh, which I, I noticed as well. So I now have kind of a map of New Chuzon in my head, but it took, took a, a, a fair amount okay. of attention. Because I, I went back and read several passages. I didn't read the book twice, but I probably read the book about it one and a half times to prepare. Yeah, exactly. There, there were some chapters where I was like, okay, I've got to listen to the play on yeah. the boat again. I was like, that seemed really central and something, and I was like, something crucial happened. And then when I went back and, and read it again, I was like, oh, something crucial did happen. It was just lampshade. Yeah. Like, like something, he like, there's this moment where he is like, he basically decides yeah. to get in the water and then there's a paragraph break and then he's out of the water and it's the next you know, day and we're like, you know, I, and it's, I, I, meant, I meant to mention this last time and I didn't put a bullet point here, but this is the thing that annoys me about this book and annoys me about Stevenson sometimes, which is that he's really, really good at writing surreal moments from a first person perspective that are entertaining, weird, confusing, and then later, and it could be 500 pages later, explains them for you, which is great, and it's satisfying, but often those explanations, and especially in this book, are just the sort of like, they're, they're just sort of like, and then I realized in an instant that I was the alchemist, and, all, and suddenly I know what was happening all along, and there's a moment like that with, um, what's the name of the intelligence... McGraw's, Finkel McGraw's friend, the intelligence officer. Uh, uh, Major, Major and then later Napier. Colonel Major. There's a moment where, you know, we have all these weird, surreal scenes with the drummers and you have no idea what it's going on. And then Hackworth emerges and they've basically given him a nano. They basically like gave him a shot of penicillin, you know, a nanobot that like clears it all out of his system. And then and Napier's just sort of like, <laughs> well, boy, let me explain what was just happening to you. You see... You were hallucinating the entire time. And the, you know, uh, drummers were using your brain power in order to get you to do certain things. And it's like, it's like very, very complex, very, very strange. And then just like sudden expositional reveal in a way that's a bit clumsy. But just like Stevenson's like, I got to kind of tell yep. the, the reader what was going on there. How can I do that? I don't know. Napier can just say it. Or as happened multiple <laughs> times in this book, a character can have a sudden sort of Sherlock Holmes like realization of everything and they're like I I finally pieced it together. Hackworth is constantly like finally piecing it together and then you know sort of <laughs> he does it with Dr. X, he does it at that moment too. I think he does it with Napier one time. It's a little bit annoying. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's that that is um I I just I wish this is one of those things where, and this kind of leads into my my next question about pr possible mm. book overlapping. Um, I, I I would love to. I, I would you know he's written a lot in his in his career. I would trade, and and I'm saying this. This is bad. I'm I'm betting with mm. money that I don't have um, because I haven't read a bunch mm. of the, the later ones. I would trade two Neil Stevenson novels out of existence. Mm for him to spend an additional four to six months on the ones that remain. I would take that because you could get rid of Termination Shock and also you could get rid of the Baroque Cycle, which is entertaining, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think I'll ever read it again. But yeah, I, I would love to know what the writing schedule was like because I, I'm, kind of, um, I'm kind of starting to think 
Snow Crash and the Diamond Age and Cryptonomicon all had at least some overlap. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I think and I think there's probably less overlap between Snow Crash and the Diamond Age. There's echoes of the ideas of information being transmitted like viruses or like religions or stuff like that. The drummers are a clear case of that. But the whole Alan Turing section, I was like, Jesus, we're going to do this again in two weeks when we read yeah. all of this Alan Turing yeah. stuff in Cryptonomicon. There's also a lot of Shanghai stuff in Cryptonomicon, too. It's like, yeah. which I will say that this book made me want to go to Shanghai and like go to the Bund and check out like the old sort of like English quarter and stuff like that. It, um, the other thing is, did you catch the reference that actually explicitly suggests this book is in the same continuity to Snow yes, Crash? Yes, you did. Yes, I did. You sent me a text of it, and I was like, <laughs> in Kona and exhausted and overwhelmed. And I was like, yeah, it's a fucking line from Snow Crash. And then like, I was on a bike ride a day or two later, and then was like, holy shit! <laughs> now, now I get it. Well, like, Which is funny, because like, you probably actually encountered chiseled spam in Hawaii. <laughs> Right, like, like Hawaii is a place where they actually chisel spam. Yeah, tell us about how chiseled spam reappears in this book, and then give our, give the listeners a call back to uh, to where it popped up in uh, in Snow Crash. Right, right. So th- it's actually a lovely chapter, and I actually think I'd like to talk about this chapter in the uh, bonus pedagogy discussion. Um, it, it 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 appears with Mrs. Matheson when she's talking with Fiona and Nell, who I think at this point are maybe like 15 or 16 years old, and they're starting to have a lot of uh, tension with a very strict teacher named Mrs. Stricken. <laughs> Stricken. <laughs> uh, who, um, and, uh, and Mrs. Matheson, who's very, very old, is rolling along on a wheelchair, and she's observing the smart wheels of her wheelchair, and she mutters to herself, chiseled spam. And the two girls are, say, what are you talking about? And she says, oh, nothing, just remembering an advertisement from my youth. You know I used to be a thrasher. Um, and in that moment, we learn that Mrs. Matheson was either a peer and contemporary of YT, the, the skateboard delivery, or could actually be YT. Uh, that is yeah. a possibility. Um, although I wish I wish it were I wish it were that I I I, I strongly suspect it's the former, not the latter. YT would have had to become very um, socially conservative in her old age. Yeah. Um, and, um, <laughs> although we have the sense that Mrs. Matheson, you know, is is worldly and cosmopolitan and has chosen this sort of socially conservative tribe. You know, um, but but is is maybe more open-minded than many of the neo-Victorians. Um, and of course, it's a reference to um, the smart wheels that YT purchases. And at one point, I think uh, Stevenson writes the advertisement that uh, yeah. YT watched that prompted her to purchase the smart wheels, which is like, do you want to end up like chiseled spam? Yeah. If not, chiseled you need to... spam is what you'll see in the mirror if you're not rolling, <laughs> like, whatever the smart wheels are. Whatever were. the smart wheels are, right, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so there's this, the, and it, you know, obviously it's a little bit of an Easter egg, and you could imagine the Snow Crash world being a predecessor of this world if 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 that if they thought about that era as sort of a dark age and it, they do yeah you know they they sort of, that that is part yeah, of I'm, what the the neo Victorians are sort of a response to the Snow Crash era of kind of you know anarchic 
ultra violent um, ethnic enclave, you know, feuding ethnic enclaves. Yeah, I think you're right. Last time, I think I expressed some skepticism, but, Me too. but now, like with this in the book, it's one of those writerly things where, like, it is if we if it's not, then this is a this is a this is a prank. This right. is an in joke. And, and Stevenson is a better writer than that. Yeah. Like he, like he wouldn't just stick it in here as a, like, as like a piece of graffiti basically. Yeah. But they like, are, they are so, different styles of book though. Right. Yeah. It, they, but, yeah they, but, they sure are. But I, I'm convinced I'm like, this couldn't, it's such a specific, uh, it's such a specific reference. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, it, it talks about the exact wheels. Yeah, no, he's, that, he's you know, telling, he's telling us this. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, and in the context, she says she was a thrasher, you know, she rode a skateboard yeah. around too. I mean, you know, he's telling us this is the future of snow crash. Yeah. So I think you're, yeah, it's, it's, my brain has a hard time putting those worlds together and making sense of the handoff. Mm. Um, it, it just seems like, a, it just seems like a lot. Um, of a lot of change. Um, it doesn't seem to be a huge amount of time. Um, and maybe, it, maybe 60 years, something like that. 60 or 70. Yeah. Years. It's a lot of, that's a lot of geopolitical and social change. Well, but keep in mind, snow crash is really only set in North America. Um, and, and, and Stevenson makes it clear in snow crash that America has the worst economy in the world now because of its collapsed mm-hmm. sort of hyper capitalism. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it doesn't really speak to what's happening in the rest of the world. Uh, yeah. There is a reference in Snow Crash that you can uh, ship things around the world on a dirigible mm. for a nickel. Mm. Um, and a dirigible is probably going to be the antecedents of these mysterious airships that, again, Stevenson's like, yeah, whatever. We don't need to describe that. They get yeah. you to, they, they get you from here to there in, in well, very we, little time. They, uh, I do remember he describes that the technology is vacuum. So rather than yeah. using lighter than air gas, they just they have some kind of material. And of course, if if diamond is now like the cheaper than glass, you can imagine that they can make some kind of blimp material uh, that you can pump out, turn into a vacuum. Um, and you know, it is dirigibles are cheap, and you know mm-hmm. they don't. If you can propel them, um, if you solve the safety problem, they're a really great, <laughs> you know, transportation system. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to jump to my, my question about orphaned MacGuffins. Um, so, um, the, a lot of the first half of the book centers around Dr. X and the wonderful Judge Fang, um, sort of manipulating Hackworth eventually into a place where he has to, um, where he has to hand over the technology of the primer to educate the, you know, half a million Han Chinese girls that otherwise would be exposed to the elements and left to die. Right. Um, which, which, Hackworth, this, which Hackworth comes to, to come, does willingly. Uh, he, or yeah. comes to agree that that is a, a noble and virtuous use of the primer. Yeah. And there is, and I, I, I can't tell, um, there's a moment when Hackworth is agreeing to that where the book says that Hackworth slipped like basically tricked dr x without even knowing that he was doing it Mm. um and it's not explicated in that moment but then Mm. in the second half of the book 
we bump into a moment where Dr. X and Hackworth are once again reunited. And Dr. X is like, oh, that was a mistake. Yeah. And I'm like, what the, f-? <laughs> like, hold on. And he says, you know, and, and, and Hackworth actually pushes back, right? And says, why, how could you say that was a mistake? And, he, and Dr. X has to sort of um, hem and haw a little bit. And he says, well, you know, obviously trying to help those girls was the right thing to do. Um, but essentially, you know, without having a kind of human mentor attached to the primer, uh, mm-hmm. it just didn't work as well or something like that. And and what frustrates me about it is it is that is a that is a huge MacGuffin that has powered the narrative of the first half, yeah. which is completely abandoned yeah. for this MacGuffin of the seed, which yeah. is what powers the narrative of the second which, half. Which, if if I recall, doesn't even really exist in the first half, right? Pretty much, like yeah. yeah I, I mean, I bet I bet if we were doing a slightly deeper or more careful reading, we would pick up yeah. um, we would pick up some references to it. Um, but this kind of goes with your sense of like, this is two different novels. Um, and I am, I am frustrated by the orphaned MacGuffin of, of, of basically 500,000, uh, who do come back to play an important role. But the fact that this whole thing that we've invested time and money, time and attention in Dr. X is sort of like, oh, that was a mistake. Yeah, and 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 of course we don't see Doctor Fang again, or sorry, Judge Fang mm-hmm. again, and his his sidekicks. They're gone. I mean, there's you know, there are enough sci-fi premises to write seven novels, right? Like the Drummers <laughs> is a premise, the, the the just the 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 Diamond Age, just the geopolitical situation, just the pedagogy of the Primer. But to me, there's sort of two major plots, and one is the you know, the education of Princess Nell, or sorry, the education of Nell. Um, that's that's one plot. And then the other is the sort of end game of the seed versus the feed, you know, the sort of two yeah. technologies. And what we're learning is Dr. X is trying to free China from the feed, which is basically like cheap or free matter replicators, but on the Western world's terms. Um, yeah, and it, it's like a it's like a weird barsoom scoop. Um, that Ooh. like some, um, uh, uh, you'll, you'll, this'll, this'll resurface. Um, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, I can't remember if it's Heinlein or Niven. Um, but there's enough f- like floating hydrogen in the vacuum of space that if you get a scoop that is really fucking big, um, that you can get enough hydrogen to basically power a cascading series of nuclear reactions mm. to speed yourself up mm. close to the speed of light. Um, turning around is always as, you know, that's always the problem, mm-hmm. slowing down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, but it seems that the feed basically sucks in um, elements from the environment and turns it into... Because we hear that it's... Um, it's a series of elements, right? Um, and different cultures mix it differently. Uh, so some you get like a lot of phosphorus, and the feed like is like really like burns really bright. And it's another, you know, again like you give Neil Stevenson like a scientific conceit, you're going to get a lovely literary passage out of it, right? Um, but it's it's but, a utility. Yeah. It's, something, it's right something that is conveyed sort of like a gas main in a pipe, right? Yeah, um, totally. But it but it's matter. 
and the capacity to make, as we learned and we discussed last time, mattresses or food <laughs> or, you know, a knife uh, or a gun or basically anything. And, and um, but, uh, you know, Dr. X has a really interesting complaint with it. And actually, I have a reading about that. I may, I may do it at some point if we get there. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's its own interesting novel. Um, and they're, they're, and the, the two, these two plots are tack welded together in a way that to me feels, I don't know. It's, it's, I can't, I, I can't tell if it's done with just tremendous craft that I, and I'm just kind of stupid that I'm having a hard time tracking the keys and Princess Nell. And I mean, the, he has welded them together, right? Like there, there, there is the causal relationship between the two plots and Carl Hollywood and Hackworth. But I can also imagine each of those plots existing independently. Like you could have a novel, I think, that was really just based on everything that was introduced in the first half of the book. The primer. Yes. Uh, the files, the... Um, I even don't even know that you need the nano warfare, to be honest. Um, what's I, this is another thing I find a little bit confusing too is that we're we're meant to understand that Hackworth is a nano engineer, right? And yet Hackworth is designer, the designer of the book, which is a sort of genius application of artificial intelligence technology, sort of filtering mythology and everything we know about human education. Where's the nano engineering in that? <laughs> it's a it's a tablet, yeah, with a really powerful AI. That, yeah. As far as I can tell, that's what the book is. Yeah, and and so that's like, then that then's bolted on to some human interaction. But right. you're right. There's no. There's a lot of. Um, I don't know what I what I would. This is what I would. It's not derisive, um, but I would sort of call like shell game like like authoring yeah like there's like there's a lot of like this thing is happening don't look behind the curtain (laughs) well like like we don't like we don't get to really see how the sausage is made in this particular novel yeah um and it i don't know it the 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 analogy that keeps coming up to me is like whenever you do something in the world um like anything you like you do that thing you also create a massive amount of wasted heat at the same time this book feels inefficient in that way mm. i don't think it's because you're not reading carefully i think it's because it it it's just too big and he didn't dedicate the time to knitting everything together in the second half um yeah it's it's i, I really i'm completely with you I think there is a way to have this book about two thirds the length. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I don't, and I don't know that you need the seed plot at all. I mean, it's interesting. You could, I could, I could see a whole other novel that sort mm-hmm. of seed versus feed and kind of gets in. I mean, Stevenson's fascinated with anthropology and sort of like class clash of civilizations too, and. And I'm fascinated with actually. Could I can I do this reading now? This is sort yeah, of like yeah, Doctor X's think... complaint with the the fee. I found this moment really interesting. Um, see if I have it marked well. Is this it? Uh, yeah. Um, 
so so at, you, there's this confrontation between Hackworth and Doctor X. It's got some great Stevenson writing, writing leading up to it of Hackworth, who either a has a kind of like free pass to go see Doctor X, and 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 the um, the fists all know this, or b yeah. uh is behaving like a madman and in China madmen have a kind of respect such that they're allowed to go everywhere we're not, it's sort of not clear which or maybe it's a little bit of both um, yeah. but we have the sense that he has safe passage and so so he shows up and what we are meant to understand is that Hackworth has mostly completed engineering the seed when he was sort of dreaming and unconscious part of this gestalt consciousness, but he hasn't quite finished. And so Dr. X really, really wants Hackworth to finish the seed. And Hackworth says, why do you need it? Hackworth said, we must have technology to live. Dr. X said, but we must have it with our own tea. Hackworth thought for a moment that Dr. X was referring to the beverage But the doctor began to trace characters on the tabletop, his hand moving deftly and gracefully, the brocade sleeve rasping across the plastic surface. Yong is the outer manifestation of something. Tea is the underlying essence. Technology is a yang associated with a particular tea. That is, the doctor stumbled here through a noticeable effort refrained from using pejorative terms like barbarian or guelo. That is, Western and completely alien to us. For centuries since the time of the Opium Wars, we have struggled to absorb the yang of technology without importing the Western tea. But it has been impossible. Just as our ancestors could not open our ports to the West without accepting the poison of opium, we cannot open our lives to the Western technology without taking in Western ideas, which have been as a plague on our society. The result has been centuries of chaos. We ask you to end that by giving us the seed. I do not understand why the seed will help you. The seed is a technology rooted in the Chinese tea. We have lived by the seed for 5,000 years, Dr. X said. He waved his hand toward the window. By the way, they're in a McDonald's having this meeting right now. (laughs) Um, There were rice paddies before there were parking lots. Rice was the basis for our society. Peasants planted the seed and had the highest status in the Confucian hierarchy. As the master said, let the producers be many and the consumers few. When the feed came in from Atlantis, from Nippon, we no longer had to plant because the rice now came from a matter compiler. It was the destruction of our society. When our society was based upon planning, it could truly be said, as the master said, virtue is the root Wealth is the result. But under the Western tea, wealth comes not from virtue, but from cleverness. So the filial relationships have become deranged. Chaos, Dr. X said regretfully, then looking up from his tea and nodded out the window. Parking lots and chaos. That last bit is such a Stevenson line. That, yeah. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe... I want to. I want to read. Is it Edward Said who wrote Orientalism? I, I mean, I wonder if Stevenson's doing a nickel dime sort of anthropological analysis of Chinese culture here. But he's mm. well read. What I do like about it is that up until this moment, the Celestial Kingdom and the Fists have really behaved badly, and they seem like the mm. bad guys and the antagonists. And this is a nice moment where I think we're meant to understand Doctor X. And the Celestial Kingdom, they have a valid complaint, you know, that this matter compiling technology has 
it's been superimposed on their culture in a way that's not working out for them. And mm-hmm. I enjoy that. I think I think that's and I, I like that I like a moment of it's not just good guys and bad guys, that there there yeah. are struggles between two great forces and you know, maybe Maybe the fists are wrong, you know, to rape and pillage their way into yeah. Shanghai. They are wrong, um, but maybe they have a, a valid cultural complaint, too. Yeah. I mean, it, like this book is an interesting examination of two different kinds of post-scarcity cultures and, mm. and the bad things that happen even in a post-scarcity culture, culture. Like there are still plenty of poor people in post-scarcity um, in post-scarcity um, cultures, they're just not dying every day from starvation, from, you know, or from starvation malnutrition and, or lack of medicine. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's funny. So many science fiction books have some kind of nod towards a post-scarcity um, world because it does solve a lot of narrative issues for you. Yeah. Um, all of the expanse books, uh, which are good. I really, I really enjoy those um, on earth. You can elect to just Go on basic, it's called. And basically you're given enough money to um, to just kind of get by. Yeah. And it's not – you're not poor, um, but you're certainly – but it doesn't furnish you with any capital to do anything more with your life. Um, and I think that that is always a – that does pop up a lot in science fiction books because at some point you have to be like – it helps you get beyond the like, well, how does this actually work Yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, although it, it's, you know, it's it's kind of a little bit disappointing that at least in this book, the only solution anybody comes up to comes up with is sort of a version of ethnic nationalism. Uh, yeah. Or or if it's not ethnic nationalism, it's like an affinity group based on, you know, some kind of but it's basically like find your people and then be kind of chauvinistic. Uh, yeah. You know, once you yeah. once you do, uh, whether you're the Neo-Victorian or the Han Chinese or or Nippon or Hindustan, the four great <laughs> tribes. I think that's a I, th- I think that's where we got kind of get some of Stevenson's worldview uh, re- reflected in his work because yeah. it just keeps coming up. Yeah. You know, it, it it's it, it comes up a lot in uh, in Snow Crash. It comes up a lot in this book. It is discussed quite a bit in Zodiac in ways that we kind of talked about previously. Yeah. And we're like, um, <laughs> I don't know if you can assign cultural uh, uh, cultural qualities uh, based on a reading of the restaurants in Boston. Yeah. Yeah. No. And he's and he's I mean, it's he's certainly informed. And mm-hmm. the mo- the wisest characters are characters like Mrs. Matheson, who at one point says, it, 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 she's, she's like, you know, the, the New Atlantis is a perfectly good tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's not chauvinistic. She, and I think this is where Stevenson's coming from, um, it's, it's sort of, it doesn't really matter, you know, there are many good tribes that you could pick, but you really ought to pick one. Um, and there, there's a very explicit, you know, Mrs. Matheson makes that argument. It basically says you can be clever, you can be talented, but unless you combine your efforts with those of a tribe, you won't succeed in this world. And this world mm-hmm. is very dangerous. And that point is reinforced when Nell goes out on her own and, you know, uh, goes to work for becoming the story consultant for a brothel in Shanghai. <laughs> no, it's 
wonderful. Like I do, I love that that section with Colonel Napier where where Nell is kind of like do this now yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. kind of like weirdly directing this strange sexual encounter from from on high i love i love um, that i'd forgotten about that it is very well written and i love also yeah. when so so this is happening and they get assaulted by fists and colonel napier sort of snaps out of the fantasy and 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 you know it has this moment where he's he suddenly goes back to being colonel napier and takes control and takes command and kind you know there you're kind of not entirely clear whether he because the thing that Nell suggests is a sort of fourth wall breaking narrative trope where I can't remember her exact suggestion but it's something that suggests that maybe something is broken down and what yeah. was a fantasy that he was paying for something's gone wrong and now <laughs> you know I can't remember exactly what it was uh, but then it's like it's it's like cryptnet operatives are like oh, coming yeah, yeah, for yeah. yeah oh yeah no yeah that's right we're not really you know we're not really prostitutes we're actually cryptnet operatives and we're torturing you and then he loves that he's enjoying it but then when the fists actually attack he's able to distinguish the fake fake something's going wrong in the brothel from the real something's going wrong in the brothel and then you know kind of becomes a a hero in that moment I'm I'm really I'm really intrigued by this question of implied plot versus scene I kind of alluded to it earlier but but it is more specifically, so there's the thing I alluded to earlier, which is the, I don't know how you would exactly term this in literary terms, but it's first-person experience of something that is bizarre to the point where maybe the reader even wonders if it's a hallucination. And to make it matters even worse with Stevenson, sometimes it is a hallucination. Uh, <laughs> sometimes it's not. And so, I mean, one of the great examples of this kicks off part the second, which is the orgy sex ritual um, where something like 12 young men in glowing condoms with the tips cut off, uh, (laughs) exposing their engorged glands, um, all have sex with a woman who then catches on fire. Um, And you don't... Why that happens is not explained for something like 300 pages. But eventually... Almost towards the end. Eventually that is revealed to not be a... because, Because during this time, Hackworth is dreaming, right? So this could be a dream. It could be a hallucination. It's not a dream. It's not an hallucination. It becomes something very important. So that's one example. But there's also things that happen where the two examples I can come up with are Harv has to leave Nell because essentially Dovetail can't take in Harv for political reasons. Also, Hackworth at the beginning of Park the Second, gets on a mechanical horse, rides into a grove, walks into the sea, and disappears. And in both cases, several pages go by, and then very in very small ways, we're given to understand that Hackworth is still missing some years later in a scene with uh, Gwen, his wife, mm-hmm. and Lord Finkel McGraw. And we're also given to understand that Harve is still alive, and Nell is um uh has been visiting him from time to time but in both cases a lot of action takes place before we we're even getting these illusions and so it 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 it's just sort of I, I do think there there's the first example of what I'm talking about, which is the surreal moment, but there are also these moments where we just lose track of a character and then you're just given a little bit of a hint um yeah. 
And you have to piece together what that character has been going through for the last seven years. In the case of Harv, we don't see Harv for 200, 300 pages, and then he turns up in a Catholic sanatorium with terrible asthma. Um, Which makes sense, given he's living on the streets in the least territories, and there are nano-wars going on. Um, But none of that's explained. And I don't, you know, I I guess I just have a question about is that do you find that powerful or do you find it a little bit unsat is this part of the sloppiness we're talking about or is this actually a well-honed craft which is you can sometimes leave a narrative thread pick it up later and let the listener fill in what's happened I think I think it can be for sure um, I think that there are a lot of places where it is done really well I think it is done I think it is done here often enough that actually the effect is the novel begins to drift out of focus. Mm. There's just too many details and too much sort of like, all right, everybody, we're going 10 years ahead. Um, there's a little, there's a little too much of that in, in there's a little too much hand waving and lampshading. Well, and I think I agree. And especially with your observation about orphan McGovern's, because yeah. this is not an author at this phase in his career who we can necessarily trust to tell us what's going to happen to Harv. And so <laughs> you don't know, did I miss something? Did I, did I accidentally read a paragraph too fast? Or is that the end of Harv? Or should I keep, thinking in the back of my mind, what's happening to Harv? What's happening to Harv? In that case, you do get a very satisfying scene where what's happened Mm -hmm. to Harv is answered in a very, actually one of the most poignant moments in the entire book, Mm. I think. Um, Very sad, humorous, sad. Harv is a great example of somebody with a noble soul who just does not get the mentorship and education he deserves and thus becomes an extremely tragic character. Um, and yes, yeah. he's done some things wrong, but at the same time, he has no role model whatsoever. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think I agree with your conclusion. And and I think the 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 biggest um, the biggest offense of that is the moment on the dramatis personae ship mm. where Hackworth is like, "All right, I've got to go take part in this play," and and then. It it takes place in a in a paragraph break. Yeah, I mean, I think that scene is also an example of like I don't know if Stevenson took acid or you know did a bump of blow before writing that, but if I were to learn that that did happen, it would not be particularly surprising. But it is it's like the dramatis personae performance is this sort of wonderful funhouse. It re- I mean, it reminds me of like. Um, like a Frank Miller sort of Batman and Joker graphic novel of like, where, what's up? What's down? You know, like, where are you? There's a uh, robotic cockney clown making body rhymes. So I do feel like that's one of those cases where Stevenson got really carried away by just the depiction of that moment. Again, that sort of first person. Hackworth of all the characters is the one who is often feels like he is on a funhouse ride and just being sort of taken yeah. through the funhouse and he's sort of trying to make sense of what's going on. Yeah, in this in and, and there's a parallel to there's a parallel to Snow Crash it, that and we sort of felt that about Hero as well mm-hmm. where like Hero begins to be, just be kind of like the funhouse ride that moves the plot forward, but YT becomes the character that we're actually interested in and invested in a character way in a very similar way that, that we are with Nell in this book. Yeah. 
Yeah, although Hackworth is a little more... Yeah, Hackworth is interesting because Hackworth's agency... So, the very beginning of the novel, he does something to express agency and to gain autonomy, and then that proves to be wrong, immoral, illegal. He's punished for it by having his agency taken away, and then the second half of the book, he's kind of gradually getting it back. And I think that is kind of an interesting... Um, so Hackworth becomes interesting for that reason. Although the ending, I don't know. I don't quite. The ending is a problem. The ending is just not uh, like if, if Dr. X is so committed to getting the seed and is allied with the, 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 the middle kingdom, Mm -hmm. um, who have just taken over, uh, Shanghai, um, and Dr. X knows about the drummers, knows that they exist, know that, that they're there. He has an army literally like up there. And the book ends with something about like the drummers could wait, you know, decades if necessary uh, for the seed to be delivered. And I'm like, no fucking way is Dr. X going to back off at this moment and not keep the pressure on. My understanding was that essentially Nell, by rescuing Miranda, also kind of purged the drummer's ability to finish the seed technology at that moment. Like she introduced some kind of nanosite into their bodily fluids that kind of essentially like deleted the seed hard drive at that point. That's a metaphor, but... My reading was that she deleted it basically from Miranda. Mm. And then the and then that we get that image that's like the the drummers were patient. They could wait, you know, ages uh, if necessary. Well, so but the idea th- the idea was though that they were about to to basically consummate basically put together all of the data, all of the nanocytes into Miranda's body which would cause her to yep. burn to death, but yes. would also be the kind of final processing equation of the program that's creating the seed. Exactly. And that was yeah. thwarted. Oh, and I and yep. I and then you're saying so, but they didn't necessarily need Miranda, they could find another Miranda and they could do right. it again. And and it and it seems like a um it seems it seems like a real like I don't know how to finish this up. Let's let's go home, everybody. Well, and is your understanding at one point we see the the man with the bowler hat walk into the water? Is that mm-hmm. Hackworth throwing his lot in with Doctor X and the drummers and agreeing to help them in that moment, or is that Hackworth creating committing suicide, or is that? I think it's him. I think it's just him going with Nell and Miranda and uh, Nell or he's and just, Carl. He's joining and... the refugees and escaping yeah, Shanghai. That's what I th- and going to take the tunnels to Nuchuzan. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I was a little confused by it. So he, ch- I couldn't tell if he, because he, he certainly was. He certainly was swayed, or I should say, he was certainly influenced by Dr. X's argument about the key. Yeah. But was he swayed? Uh, right. Unclear. Um, can I read my sort of favorite Victorian passage? <laughs> so this is, this is a moment where Carl Hollywood is in a hotel. Um, he's now become a neo-Victorian. And the fists, something is detonated in the hotel, and he has the impression that the fists are attacking the hotel and he decides it's time to leave and go to the dock and try to get some transportation to New Zone. And um, he goes and finds this old uh, retired English colonel 
who he had met the other day. Colonel Spence. And Colonel Spence and uh, Carl Hollywood both have kind of like 19th or early 20th century era weaponry, like revolvers. They've got slug throwers. Colonel Spence is at the door, knocks on the door, and uh, Carl Hollywood answers and Spence says, Say, I'm frightfully sorry to have disturbed you, but I thought you might want to know that there are fists in the hotel. (laughs) He gestured down the corridor with his gun. Carl poked his head out and discovered a dead bellboy sprawled out in front of an open door, still clutching a long knife. As it happens, I was already up, said Carl Hollywood, and contemplating a bit of a stroll to the waterfront. Care to join me? Delighted! Colonel Spence, Royal Joint Forces, retired. Carl Hollywood. On their way down the fire stairs, Spence killed two more hotel employees, who he had, on somewhat ambiguous grounds, identified as fists. Carl was skeptical in both cases until Spence ripped their shirts open to reveal the scarlet girdles beneath. It's not that they're really fists, you see, Spence explained jovially, just that when the fists come, this sort of nonsense becomes terribly fashionable. (laughs) After exchanging some more self-consciously dry humor about whether they should settle their bills before departure and how much you were supposed to tip a bellboy who came after you with a carving knife, they agreed it might be safest to exit through the kitchens. Half a dozen dead fists littered the floor there, their bodies stripped with the marks of cookie cutters. Arriving at the exit, they found two fellow guests, both Israelis, staring at them with the fixed gaze that implies the presence of a skull gun. Seconds later, they were joined by two Zulu management consultants carrying long telescoping poles with nanoblades affixed to the, to the ends, which they used to destroy all of the light fixtures in their path. It took Carl a minute to appreciate their plan. They were all about to step out into a dark alley, and they would need their night vision. To me, it's pure fun, and um, you know, the the um, the presence of the Zulus to me seemed like a little bit of a, a clue, a little bit of a cipher, because this scene and and there's another bit a little bit later where Carl Hollywood has a. Um, moment of clarity regarding sort of this Victorian stiff upper lip or this Victorian bravado, which is that it's not about pretending you're not afraid. It's a face-saving way of sort of making these sort of stiff jokes about, oh, should, should we tip the bell boy who just came out? How much is appropriate if he comes after you with a knife? I'd say that's terribly poor service. I say, you know, that, that that sort of humor is not, it's not intended to fool anybody into making you think that, in making uh, them think that you're not afraid. It's sort of a face-saving way of admitting that you're afraid. Um, and the, the reference to the Zulu reminds me of the Michael Caine film, uh, I think from the late 1960s, Zulu, which is full of this sort of thing. <laughs> you know, it's full of sort of... And so I think there's a little bit of a, a tip of the hat to Zulu there. Uh, it also reminds me, and, you know, it's it's ridiculous, and, and what follows is a kind of adventure novel shootout. Uh, let's all get to the docks, you know, and eventually they run into some boars, and uh, they all make their way to the docks, and they're having a mel- melee with the fists and others, and, you know, it, it's it's violent, it's kind of adventure story, it's prurient. It's hero, it's hero on the raft. Uh, yeah. It's the, it's the final section of Zodiac. Uh, always boats. Always <laughs> boats. <laughs> there's always a boat. It also, there's a moment, though, because uh, Colonel Spence doesn't make it. 
Um, and yep. and he's very brave, and he's sort of you know there's depictions of him getting wounded and shooting the fist, you know, who wounds him, and throughout Carl Hollywood is kind of carrying him down, and the entire time his lips are flapping with this Victorian banter. Uh, and it really reminds me of the climactic scene in the uh, John Huston movie, The Man Who Would Be King. I don't know if you're familiar with the film uh, mm-hmm. where Sean Connery's character, Daniel Dravitt, at one point says to Peachy Carnahan, played by Michael Caine, Peachy, can you ever forgive me for being so bleeding high and so bloody mighty and getting us both killed? <laughs> uh, to which Peachy replies, Ah, uh, Danny, that I can, that I do, <laughs> freely and fully. Well, everything's all right then. And they they <laughs> go off to their doom together. And I always weep at that moment, mm. even though these guys are not good guys. They're engaged <laughs> in a colonial project, and they're basically trying to defraud a bunch of Afghans and steal their gold. What they're doing is not good, but there's something about that sort of male bonding, um, stiff upper lip going into danger that, that I just find very, very charming. Yeah, I th- th- those were some of my favorite sections of the second half of the book. Um, you know, it's it's straightforward, it's funny, it's heartfelt, it's caring. Um, you know, Carl has to write a letter to uh to Spence's widow. Um that's a really sweet moment. Um and yeah, it's it's it it really is like um in in all of the mayhem of trying to discern the plot and its agents. The whole section of of Shanghai getting invaded, I, I really loved. And it, it also fits into this theme, too, which is one of the main ideas about the neo-Victorians, which is that they're all kind of doing it with a wink and a nod, right? That, that you know, they're not actual Victorians. These are people basically who responded to an age of chaos by adapting a very strict moral mm-hmm. code. But they're all worldly. And so they're yeah. doing it with a kind of sense of irony, too, uh, which is also very 1990s. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting, and, and, and Stevenson's fascinated by that. Want to do trivia? Yeah, let's do some trivia. You want me to go first? Okay. Um, the landmass that contains Source Victoria, New Atlantis, Dovetail, and the Least Territories is an island called New Chuzan. Uh, I think we're meant to understand that New Chuzan is a nanotechnology-created artificial island, and one assumes it refers to some place called Chuzan. Uh, so what was presumably OG Chuzan? And I, it's, it's multiple choice. Okay, thank God. Uh, one is it's a Mandarin name for the island that contains the city Hong Kong, Hong Kong being a Cantonese name. So that's A. B, it is an island not unlike Hong Kong that the British occupied before they occupied Hong Kong during the Opium Wars and had sort of their colonial base there Hmm. off the coast of mainland China. C, it is a major city in the Philippines that, like Singapore, was a trading center in the 1800s and 1900s and going back farther, that in the 1800s, the Spanish, the British, the Chinese, the Malaysians, the Portuguese, and the Arabs 
all had their own sort of enclaves there with their own police force and legal system, sort of like mm. New Chuzon has the enclaves with their own forces. Got it. Or like the pirate hangout in Black Sails. Uh, or like the pirate a, hangout in which, Black Sails. Yeah. Which is worth a watch. Um, oh, God. You're very good at these. You're very good at writing. Um, you're very good at writing the like possible outcomes of uh of them um i'm gonna go with b yeah you're correct yeah uh, c c was a little too on the nose yeah there's also it, it, it there is a a city that I, similar to what i'm describing in the philippines called luzon too so there's a little <laughs> uh, bit yes of- you're right. Uh, there is uh, there there is one of those. So that was a bit of a trick. Um, that was a bit of a like maybe if you had that in your brain, you it would sound just familiar <laughs> enough. Um, I don't know much about Chuzon, but there's a book about it, um, and mm-hmm. uh, it did figure into um, the Opium Wars. And it would make sense that if the British were going to form a new island off the mainland, or sorry, the Atlantans, early in part the first. Mm. Um, Hackworth and Fiona kind of have this, this like odd experience where they go and he, he is kind of drawn to meet someone, um, basically in the woods, like in the, in the woods of the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. uh, we, and this person is part of uh, is part of a file mm-hmm. um, called, I think, the First Distributed Republic mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a curious way of um, maintaining trust within their um, within their file. Um, Hackworth and Fiona uh, get to view one. Where the woman bungee jumps, not knowing if another member of her file has actually attached the ropes in time. Another um, another way of checking this is uh, is put forward um, in the book, mm. and the the thing that I'm looking for um, is uh, is what is that other test. Um, and I will also give it to you, uh, in multiple choice. Okay. Uh, so one option is that, um, the person who is being, one of the people who's being tested, um, discovers a noose that is set up for them. Um, and they have to go ahead and hang themselves, not knowing if the other person has detached the noose from its secure point in the ceiling. Um, the other one involves a gun being loaded. Um, the person has to load the gun, leave the room. The other person has to return and unload the gun. Um, and there's no way of knowing if that has in fact occurred. Um, and then the third option, uh, is about, uh, you have to go to a car and start driving, um, not knowing if the brake lines have been repaired on time. Uh, <laughs> which one of those is the actual thing that is uh, is offered as another example of the way that this file maintains trust in its group? It's very clever of you to include the noose, since during Dramatis Personae, there is a noose that is employed. Yes, there is. <laughs> uh, but I believe it is the gun, the loaded yes, and unloaded correct. gun. 
<laughs> but I'm glad you gave me multiple choice because I could not remember, especially in my five hours of sleep last night addled brain that I have right now. I was like, yeah. I had uh, actually read uh, uh, recently Michael Pollan's chapter in The Omnivore's Dilemma about eating mushrooms. And so what I had in my brain was... <laughs> Somebody putting out mushrooms that have to be double parboiled before you can eat them. <laughs> That's not, a great and not one. knowing whether or not they had been I double parboiled or not. <laughs> but I was like, that's not right. I think that's Michael Ballin. I'm merging books, books in my brain. Um, I would have loved that. So, um, well, we, are, um, we, we have our final question that we do at the end of a book. Yeah. Um, uh, JPD, are, are you going to read this book before you die? I, I think so. If I make it to my 80s, I suspect I'll probably read it one more time. Um, you know, I, maybe not in the next decade, but um, I, 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 I feel like there's still, there's still something in this book for me to kind of... I think if I read it again, I would, I would encounter new interesting things and that that would be an mm-hmm. interesting experience. Um, and I hope that Stevenson will continue to write fascinating books in the meantime, such that it, you know, I will have there. There will be um, enough. Uh, there'll be there'll be some interest and some juice that might take me back to the Diamond Age at some point. What about yeah. you? Yeah, I think I might read it again soon. Um, this book haunted me in a way that I really did not expect it to. And I am, I'm really, I really enjoyed living in it. Um, I I just, I just have to know if I finished it when I was a teenager. I don't think I did, Hmm. but I really thought that I did. Well, tell us, uh, tell us what's up, uh, what's up next? What is, uh, what's going to happen? Um, so the next book that you should start reading, uh, if you're still c- cool with this plan, is our plan is to do Cryptonomicon, the next Neil Stevenson novel, which I believe came out in 1999. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it is quite a bit longer than this one. So our plan is to do it in three um, readings. So read the first third of Cryptonomicon, Uh, more or less and we'll talk about that next listeners thank you for listening thanks for hanging out with us and uh this wildcap reading of uh, neil stevenson's the diamond age um please uh rate and review us Uh, a five-star rating helps a lot as we've said before give us a five-star rating we will read it on the air Um, and a review helps a lot of other people uh find the show Uh, But thanks for hanging out with us, and uh, we look forward to talking to you about Marines and Haiku and Code Breaking and Alan Turing and all of the things that happen in Cryptonomica. Submarines, gold, more Shanghai, and the Philippines. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the nanotechnologists, dirigible pilots, and judges, juries, and executioners. Music by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Graphic and website design by Chris Bag. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>